Hello, I'm Liv Bolton, and you're listening to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make adventures outdoors a bigger part of your life. The Outdoors Fix is produced in association with our friends at Ellis Brigham Mountain Sports. Welcome back to episode four of the fourth series. What if you could go camping all over the UK for a year and write books off the back of your outdoors adventures? Jen Benson is my guest in this episode, and she and her husband Sim are outdoor adventure guidebook authors, travel writers, and long distance runners. Their books include Wild Running, The Adventurer's Guide to Britain, Short Runs in Beautiful Places, and Amazing Family Adventures. They have two children, and outside of this coronavirus period, they travel to places like the Cairngorms, the Lake District, and the Isles of Scilly to research running and walking routes for their books. Jen and Sim have worked tirelessly to create this outdoors lifestyle for their family, and they've had to make a lot of big decisions to get there. One of these was deciding to live in a tent and go camping for a year. I'd planned to meet up with Jen and go for a walk with her, but because of the lockdown, we chatted from our homes instead. I wanted to find out why Jen and her husband decided to pursue a more outdoors lifestyle, how they got into adventure guidebook writing, and how it all works around family life. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Jen's story. Listen out for her tips for getting into outdoors adventure writing, and don't forget that at the end of the episode, there are some sounds of nature, all recorded by you, the listeners. So here's Jen. Jen, hello. Thank you so much for coming on the Outdoors Fix podcast. Hi Liv, great to meet you and thanks for having me on. Not at all. I'm in London. Uh, you are near Bath, I believe. Yeah, we're we're about five miles from Bath, just over the border into Wiltshire. So it's nice and quiet down near the River Avon. Um, yeah, lots of running and outdoorsy stuff around here. That's good. I, so you're with your husband and you've got two children, is that right? Yeah, we've got... Um, an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and uh, they are normally homeschooled so we're in the strange situation of uh, working from home and homeschooling anyway so things haven't changed that much for us recently. <laughs> so you're in Wiltshire, is it a place that you guys can have lots of local outdoors adventures in, in normal non-coronavirus times? It is, obviously we're quite a long way from the sea or any big mountains or anything like that and we sometimes do wonder whether we should just go and live in the lakes or something but actually having to choose one of our favorite places to go and live was just too much <laughs> so when we decided to live here we wanted to live somewhere that was easily accessible to family and to all the wild places that we regularly go to but also we're within walking distance of a train station we've got endless traffic free running and cycling along the towpath so really accessible countryside which is really great for the kids and and we can walk everywhere we can walk to the shops and the swimming pool and things so for us it was really important that we didn't have to use the car all the time and we're still not far from the motorway so when we want to go down to Devon or up to the Peak District it's really easy for us to do that so quite a rational place to live but but it works really well for us. Fantastic so what does the outdoors mean to you and as a family? It's it's kind of somewhere where we, we find getting outside with small children, it can be really 
kind of frenetic indoors with small kids um, trying to find things for them to do all the time trying to keep them occupied and as soon as you go outside like we've, we're lucky enough to have a little garden as soon as they go through the door it's like all oh, those stresses and tensions just fall away and they're interested in wood lice and climbing trees and there's just so much out there and it's almost like once once you get outdoors with them the, the struggle is getting them all ready especially in the winter all the coats and everything on but once they get through that door it's like they can they just make their own way and it, it's somewhere where they can be themselves and they can play and we've got a dog as well so as soon as we get outside it's all it's all good <laughs> <laughs> is it a way that you bond do you think particularly as a family yeah I think so yeah we've done a lot of camping and um, that's something it's kind of our happy place really is all being in the tent and um and that's a way that that we can get out and actually live in all these amazing places just for a bit and really get immersed in in nature and things and um, a while ago we spent a year camping which had its ups and downs but um, overall it was an incredibly positive experience and it's certainly something we go back to whenever we can not at the moment but actually um, some of the kids are out in the garden at the moment setting up the tent so it's something we, we're still trying to do when we can. I desperately want to talk about that big year in the tent that you had a bit <laughs> later on because it sounded like a fantastic adventure. Um, yeah. You and your husband, Sim, are adventure and travel guidebook authors, writers, adventurers, long distance runners. I'd like to explore how you got there. Were you very outdoorsy as a child? Yeah, definitely. Um, I grew up in London, but luckily had a big garden and easy access to the outdoors. So... Well, my parents weren't sporty. I, it was my refuge, really. I didn't massively love school. And I just spent most of my life in the treehouse or in a bush <laughs> and did most of my learning from from books and things back then. And it's something I've always run like through life's ups and downs. It's been my constant. I've been able to get out and run. And Sim and I actually met in a climbing shop. We both worked in a climbing shop. I was looking for part-time work to support my master's and he was managing the mail order department and needed staff so that's how we met um, and we were both into climbing and running and and cycling and things and then from there we've we've both done Ironman triathlons and and that kind of thing so it's definitely a, a theme that's run very strongly through both of our lives and um, Sim's parents live up on Dartmoor so we regularly go there and that's always been very much a part of his upbringing and his life too so yeah it's definitely it was the thing that brought us together and the thing we've carried on doing and hopefully the kids will love it as well. <laughs> so you, yeah you're a massive runner and you've done over 50 marathons and ultra marathons how did yeah. how did that you know that endurance uh, sport how did you start that? I remember thinking when I started running, like I've always run, but I think I had a big car crash when I was about 24. And after that, I, I had to kind of learn to walk again a bit and realise the privilege of being able to run. And I think I, I got busier and, and off to university and things. And, and it was something I could fit in however busy life was. And even more so with small children when they, they turned up later on. So it's something that like if you go out on your bike for an hour, it's a pretty short bike ride, but an hour running is, is a pretty decent training session. So it's, it, it's something that, that started off as a needing to find something that, that fitted into life. And then as anyone who starts running finds out, you quickly, you do your first 10K and then you think, oh, I'll try a half marathon. And then I always thought I'd never run a marathon. And then I did my first one and 
and it kind of builds up and builds up. And then yeah, I tried tumultuous and and quite enjoyed those. And it's I think it's something that when when life's pretty hectic and you're out at work all day and things, it gives you that element of challenge and being able to complete things that you're not sure like you go into that you start an ultra and you really got no idea whether you're going to get to the finish line or not and that's so unusual in life these days to kind of have that real uncertainty of whether it's something you can do or not and then to achieve that is a real buzz so I definitely race a lot less now um but yeah it's something that that has has given both of us a lot over the years wow. <laughs> um, and I probably go back to it at some point um but yeah it's yeah, life's life's very busy with other challenges at the moment. <laughs> Although I'm still running, I'm definitely racing a lot less. I bet, I bet. But going back to the racing then, what in the past, what do you think was your biggest, hardest race? Where was that? I think probably I did a 100k, I did Race to the Stones, and it was my first ultra after the birth of my second child. It was a bit of a last minute decision. I was still breastfeeding at the time and my body really wasn't ready for it and I really missed my my baby as well it was the first time I'd been away from him for that length of time we had to get up at five in the morning and so I was away from him all day and that was emotionally incredibly hard and I think like I wasn't ready for it physically or emotionally really so that was it was quite interesting and really brought it home to me that you have to if you're doing something like an ultra a big endurance event you really have to know why you're out there because the event asks so many questions of you and you get so many low points where you really have to have a, a good reason for being there. Otherwise, it's very easy to give up. And I managed to get through it, but it was it was hard in lots of ways, that one. Um, where is that one actually based? That is, it finishes at Avebury, so it goes along the Ridgeway National Trail from um, Lucknow in Oxfordshire and finishes at the Stones in Avebury. And they were waiting at the finish and that was amazing. But it just made me think, did I really want to do that? <laughs> Mm. at the time so so while I've carried on training pretty hard and I run every day and often 10 miles a day I, yeah the having to be away from the family for that amount of time I think once you've you've got your own kids trying to do a big race it's it's a lot of disruption for everybody it's a lot of money it's a lot of time away so I think we we're both much more choosy about the events we do now than we used to be so yeah I bet going back to where you and Sim met then in in a climbing shop were you both looking for an outdoors career at the time or was it just coincidental that you were you were working there for for money or was that was that a, a starting point to an outdoors career do you think um I just graduated in podiatry so I did a a podiatry degree and then I did sport and exercise medicine focusing on lower limb biomechanics and I was trying to set up my own podiatry business so I needed to do some part-time work and it was somewhere I'd worked part-time during my university time so it was something I knew quite a bit about the climbing and camping side of things so it, it worked well and it's a fun group of people whereas Sim had set up the mail order department and kind of got it really successful and then he was going off to teach in primary schools so we kind of met just before he left and then there. <laughs> um so it wasn't I think it was something that was convenient at the time and that we had a shared passion in rather than I think writing guidebooks and that kind of the thing we do now was a long long way away at that point and something neither of us had ever considered doing but yeah that that kind of happened a bit later on once the kids came along and we needed to do something where we had more control over our time rather than 
both going out to different jobs every day so that was something that evolved out of our passion and out of a bit of luck really yeah so the first guidebook that you wrote was wild running in 2014 how did you get from working in the climbing shop to writing that book how how did the opportunity (laughs) arise and where did the idea come from uh, we moved up to Bath and um, we both went, I did, a, I, I started a PhD at Bath and Sim did his PTCE there. Um, so we moved up to Bath, happened after our daughter was born, we happened to get chatting to Wild Things Publishing, who write the world's swimming books. And they lived in the same village and we had kids the same age. So we just got chatting with them really. And we made a throwaway comment, if you ever fancy what running, writing a wild running book, um, let us know because <laughs> at the time they just had the world swimming books and a little while later they came back to us and said actually if you'd be up for doing that then we'd be up for publishing it so oh, phenomenal that was kind of our first publishing deal was on the back of a just bumping into them on a walk <laughs> so that was really lucky yeah and there was certainly yeah with, with that first book a lot of lacking in confidence around our ability to do that like we'd never we had to buy a camera and learn how to use it and then like, we'd we'd always been climbing and running all over the country, but we'd never done it in order to write a guidebook about it. So we took it probably took a good couple of years in total. Um, we moved up to the Peak District and moved in with Sim's parents to give us the flexibility to do that. So yeah, just basically got to know the country better, found some amazing running routes, learnt how to take photos by taking thousands of photos. <laughs> yeah, finally put the, the book together. And the guys at Wild Things were amazing and just basically took us through the whole process and we learned so much. And yeah, so that was that was the first book and it was published the day before our second child arrived. So that was a busy week for us. Blimey, oh my goodness. <laughs> Gosh, so, so were you doing that alongside studying or, or was it that you were able to put those things on hold and, and fully focus on researching the book? Um, Sim was working and... I had to stop studying because our daughter arrived and I just I, I tried to, to juggle the two and something had to give. So that was why we moved moved in with Sim's parents, because it was it was just not working <laughs> um, with Sim being out at work and me trying to do the, the studying and the childcare and everything. So that kind of had to give and is something that I would love to go back to at some point, but no rush at all. Like when the kids are older, it would be a great thing to go back to. And he was still working part-time as a firefighter while oh, <laughs> we were right. in the Peak District as a way of being able to work around writing and childcare and everything. So I think that was our first taste of making work something that, that we could both do equally and the, and childcare something we could both do equally and kind of make work into our life as well as as well as a way of earning money. Yeah, so we wrote, wrote Wild Running and then we we very much went back into the more traditional role. Our second child arrived. The book was out, but it wasn't, it, it was kind of a, it was a nice thing to have out, but it wasn't our job. Um, so I was at home with two kids and Sim was out at work all day again. And we'd had that amazing year and a half of relative freedom doing the book project and things. And then we were back to normal life with me at home, Sim out working for, for Sustrans all day every day and we kind of never had time together we'd had a taste of writing and and the way of life that could give us but as anyone who is trying to establish themselves as a writer knows it's so hard to get established to the point where you can make that your 
only source of income. Um, and that's why we decided to go and live in a tent for a bit. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, you spent a year in a bell tent. And, we did. Yeah, camping all over the country. Where, where did you pitch the tent and for how long in each place? It varied a lot. So we were, we were in a little rented bungalow in Wiltshire, not far from where we've now ended up. And we just realised that we were working so hard to pay rent to a private landlord and have no time or, or much disposable income to see what we wanted. So we did have a lot of camping kit <laughs> um, from our years working in outdoor shops and things. So we decided we just handed our notice in, packed everything up and... Took the bell tent first down to we spent the some the we we left in the November, um and spent the winter in Cornwall and Devon because it's generally a bit warmer down there over the winter. And Sim's parents live in Devon, so there were a couple of times when things went horribly wrong. So um, in probably less than a month after we set off, there was a huge storm, and our tent broke. Oh, so at three o'clock in the morning, we ended up back at Sim's parents' house with a broken tent and a load of stuff. So it was really one of the, the big reasons we were able to do it was we had their support. Yeah, we knew that we could go and pitch on their lawn if everything else went wrong. Um, I know a lot of people don't have that. And I, I, I think if, if we hadn't had that backup and that support from them, I think it would have all been much harder. So, yeah, we spent some of the time we were in campsites. So we, we would contact campsites out of season and we had some great responses from people saying, yep, yeah, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, go and go and like some of them were open anyway. Some of them were able to just give us a space for a couple of weeks. We moved our way up the country. We spent spring in the Lake District, which was amazing. Beautiful. Um, and then over the summer holidays, we were a bit worried because obviously the, the campsites are really expensive and really busy. And we managed to secure a field on the Welsh borders for the whole of the summer. So we had two months there. Um, in return for just doing a bit of general labour and looking after the owner's garden and things while they were away. So that was really lucky. But it was a lot of uncertainty, a lot, a lot of mud and rain and things, but an overwhelming feeling of just having every day to ourselves and being in control of our own lives, which is something that that when you're working for other people, it just feels like your whole life is lived for somebody else. And and however hard it got and at some there were times when it did get really stressful with two kids and and rain and dark and mud and things but it still I don't know felt like like it was an adventure that was ours and the next day we'd wake up and the day was ours to do what we wanted with and it also gave us the time and space and the the freedom from that endless monthly rent to start building up work writing and to get established in that and over the course of it, sort of ended up being about 18 months in the end. And it gave us that time to get established with a few magazines and get the next book going and things. So it was exactly what we needed to get to get that, that foot on the ladder with, yeah. with writing as well. How did you juggle living in the tent and trying to work as well as the childcare? Our youngest was, he wasn't walking yet, so he was very much being carried around all the time <laughs> and our eldest was three at the time so she was still really little and they're in some ways a lot easier to keep occupied when they're really little <laughs> uh, there's a lot of books and jigsaws and drawing and things but yeah I never remember it being 
difficult in, in the way that it is in a house to keep them occupied. I guess you just, in a tent, as long as you put the zip at the top, they can't really get into mischief. <laughs> <laughs> and over the first couple of months of the winter, we did have a wood-burning stove in the tent. And that was a little bit more stressful, trying to keep the, the older one away from that. But once we moved on, we tended to get places, if we could, with electric hookup. So a little heater works brilliantly in a tent where it warms everything up really quickly and it's really safe. And we'd be able to plug laptops in. So I'd be sitting there working and, and our um, eldest was just bimbling around. So it worked amazingly well, actually. <laughs> I sometimes wonder how, but I, yeah, it was, it, it seemed to, um, seemed to suit them quite well. <laughs> Fantastic. And the adventures that you must have all had exploring all those areas, because I suppose when you have a long time in a new area, you can really get to know it as a bit of a local, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And and actually sleeping with your your ear to the ground of a place is there's there's no better way to get to know it really. So you get to know places at night when there are owls around and foxes and and you get to know the just what, what places sound like in a tent in a way that you really don't get get in a house. And I always still have to have the window open at night because it's too quiet. <laughs> <laughs> when <laughs> um, I hear those birds yeah yeah exactly and as runners we take it we, we've always taken it in turns to get out running so we'd make our own explorations of places that way and then during the day we'd go out with the kids and explore it at their pace which is very different as well and we were documenting everywhere with our photography and and writing daily blogs and things so so yeah it was a a really good way to get to know places and that's been really helpful since then Obviously, we've we've we're now working on our tenth book, and that that ranges across family adventures and and walks and runs and things. So it's been like, being able to draw on that experience of having lived in all these places has been really great as well. Yeah, I mean, you you'd know so many amazing amazing routes and walks and adventures all around the country. That that's fantastic. And why did tent life come to an end after about just over a year? I think we were all more than ready for, <laughs> for it. Um, I'd started when we were at campsites, especially the like the second winter. Anyone who had a, a caravan or a, a camper van and they were sitting there in the warm with the lights on and I started feeling a bit, <laughs> a bit resentful. Yeah, it just felt like it was it was time to put down roots a bit more. We're now back renting again, but on our own terms. Like we'd got to the point where we could... We, we could support ourselves enough that writing is is now our our main way of doing that so it's a fairly extreme way of establishing yourself in something but luckily it worked for us so although we're again renting it's we're doing that through work we love and work that fits around our life and our kids lives in a completely different way from what it was like before our our year in a tent <laughs> yeah sounds like it was a really pivotal experience what did you learn from that experience that that time in the tent do you think that we're brilliant that we I think that ability to um, like make a decision and and go for it like a lot of people were saying that's a crazy thing to do and like even my parents were worried about our personal safety but I think I think when when you're in a position where you know you're not happy and day after day it's it doesn't feel like the right way to be living your life you either carry on being unhappy every day or you make a big decision and <laughs> and that's what we did and I think 
it's it's made us trust our judgment better um coming being back in a house now i definitely appreciate the small things about how how easy it is to live in a house so every day i still appreciate even i guess it's four years three and a half four years since we moved back into our house i still appreciate having hot water and like without having to boil it and having <laughs> having light switches and just little things like that that you'd think you just would get used to again so quickly it's it's such hard work camping for that length of time but also that that actually being together is the most important thing for us and i think that ability to to do a job that that works around us rather than having to fit our life around a job is is key for us and that and the balance as well having all being in together it takes away all those traditional roles that we so easily fall into when we're working for the people and looking after kids and things and we've carried that on since since taking up a more normal lifestyle again now that you're back and uh, in a house you seem to have been really prolific in your guidebook writing in, in the last few years. You've written books such as Amazing Family Adventures, uh, Wild Running, the second edition, and then your most recent one, Short Runs in Beautiful Places, which is published by the National Trust. I'd love to hear a bit more about the actual process of, of writing these guidebooks. So do you split the workload? Do, do each of you have different roles writing the book? Yeah, definitely. I tend to do the majority of the actual writing. Sim tends to, he does all the driving. I don't drive. <laughs> I can drive, but I hate it, so I don't. So yeah, Sim does all the logistics side of things. We're, we're pretty equal on the photography front. So, and we tend to, especially with running, we tend to take photos of each other running. So that's fairly equally split. And then Sim does a lot of the mapping. It's a really helpful process. We read and critique each other's writing. So if Sim writes a route, I will read through that and make sure it makes sense. And if I write anything, he'll read through that and make sure it makes sense. So I think having both of us gives that double perspective and, and means that we proofread and edit each other's work before it then goes to anyone else, which is which is really helpful. But, but yeah, I tend to do the majority of the actual writing bit. And obviously because we homeschool the kids as well, we have to split that in half too so I tend to work in the morning and Sim takes the kids out and then we'll swap over um, and Sim works in the afternoon and I, oh. I do painting or pottery or something with yeah. the kids so so yeah we we kind of split everything up and so it's very equal but um but yeah we definitely have our own roles in it yeah so how long do you think you're given for a for a guidebook you know how long do you spend researching and traveling and, and doing the routes uh, and then how long to sort of write it all up um, it's probably about a year on average from kind of signing the contract to when it needs to be handed in. And that gives us the whole year in terms of getting photography for all the different seasons and making sure we've got enough good weather to get everywhere that we need to. We've got a couple of walking books that are, we've got day walks in Devon and day walks in Cornwall. And later on this year, we've got day walks in Somerset coming out. Oh, great. So they're all quite nice because they're 20 longer walks in a specific area, whereas all our other books have been national. So they tend to be a little bit more crazy in terms of travel and, and trying to get photos everywhere, trying to get good weather for photos, especially in mountainous areas. So probably about a year for each one 
on average but quite often we can if we've got a couple of different projects on the go and we also write for trail magazine and country walking and, and trail running so we can quite often combine a trip and make sure that we research and, and get photos for all those things at the same time so so yeah it's quite good now we've got lots on the go we make sure we we plan trips that that take in a bit of everything that we need to do so do you have a, a favourite area or part of the UK uh, when you're you know, looking at planning different guidebooks of running adventures or family adventures? Is there is there a favourite part of the UK that you always go back to? I don't know if there is, actually. I think every time we go somewhere new, it surprises us. So we, we've been up to Scotland the last few years in the spring and tried to spend a few weeks up there. And that always amazes us, like the, the differences in the islands and the, the um, Caledonian forests. And like it's, it, it's, we so often go somewhere and we like we thought we knew the country really well, and then you find somewhere that completely surprises you, and you you couldn't even have imagined existed. But then that happens down here as well. We're both from this, like we've spent spent the last couple of decades living and exploring the southwest, but then fairly recently we went to Exmoor and we're exploring the Exmoor coast and again there, there were parts of that that were just breathtaking and and we hadn't realized they existed so and the Isles of Scilly we went to the Isles of Scilly two years ago and we'd never been there before and again it's just like a different world and for such a small country there's so much diversity so I, I think the more we explore the more we realize there isn't a favorite pit I think um but yeah we've both spent a lot of time in Devon and I suppose that's home for us in a way that's where where we kind of go back to but yeah other than yeah so many amazing places oh yeah I'm a massive fan of Devon as well absolutely yeah (laughs) Um, with your book Amazing Family Adventures then that you published in 2017 how did you come up with these family adventures what was the process of deciding on what they would be I think with that one we kind of worked with the um, National Trust with that one because that's the National Trust book we were very much guided by our kids and friends' kids and, and what they enjoy doing. So we tried to, to sort of observe them and, and see what sort of kind of things they love doing. And I think with National Trust places, we've always found that they really get that balance nicely of wild and safe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's normally a cafe and there's normally buggy friendly and changing and all that stuff. But you get plenty of the wild side of things as well. So it was, it was actually a really nice book to write because we had to go to lots of National Trust places. Some of them paid entry, some of them aren't. So there's a, there's a nice range in there. But every time we, we went to one, the kids just loved it. <laughs> so it was quite hard to pick specific adventures, really. And in the end, we decided to go with a lot of them are fairly kind of classic, climb a tree, make a nature journal, that kind of thing. Um, and then try to locate the best places to do that that we knew of and that we'd found on our our research trips so I think I think with most kids if you let them go outside there's a fairly short list of things they'll love doing <laughs> um but but yeah I think um just being guided by them really and like they can't especially younger children can't do anything too risky so it's not like with our with one of our other books the Adventurous Guide to Britain book we could be a little bit more high risk with that and there's a lot more water-based stuff and and scrambling and that kind of thing whereas with the kids it has to be fairly safe and manageable so 
so yeah kind of just we were guided by what they love doing really i love it they're unofficial contributors to the book aren't they <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. it's got a nice little family photo album there are lots of photos of them at various stages in it so it's, that's quite a nice keepsake for us as well fabulous is there a standout memory from over the years of writing any of your books is there something where you thought uh, an experience where you thought gosh pinch me when i'm doing this Probably the Isles of Scilly, actually. There was a Monday morning and we were on a rib <laughs> um, bombing over the amazingly clear blue sea to go and look at puffins and things. Um, and the kids were sitting in front of me. They would otherwise have been at school. And I just did think like, they're, they're going to learn like, with these amazing experts about puffins and things. Wow. And we're bombing over the sea and it's a Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Jamming. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was probably one of the moments when I just thought, you know, this is this is a pretty good way to earn a living, really. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, the way that you've got there is just so so inspiring, and also, what a lot of fun. I mean, did you ever think that you would get your career to this place? No, never. And I think with any aspiring writers, you have to do a lot for free to start with, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I think especially having not come, we didn't do journalism or, or even English at, at university. So there was a lot of almost doing an apprenticeship um, and not being paid early on to get established in the field, but also to, to get better at it. And when I look back at some of my early writing now, I'm glad I didn't get paid for it. <laughs> because you realise the learning curve you've been on and, and we now write every day and that's a real learning process and it's we're still learning but I, I I don't think until probably three years ago that I really thought we'd be able to make all our living in this way and I think that's like we've been lucky but also we've been pretty tenacious and and you have to create it's not like when you work for somebody else you get told what you need to do next you have to create every single bit of work yourself and it's very uncertain. So while at the moment it's fine, if two years down the line, we don't know whether we'll still be able to to maintain this way of life. So it's definitely not for everyone. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's come from a place of doing initially not really being paid for anything to having done that apprenticeship and now being at a point where, where you can expect to be paid for things a bit more. So yeah, it's a, it's a strange process. <laughs> Is there a guidebook you would love to write in the future? I would quite like to write about our wild year. And that's something I've kind of been toying with the idea of doing for a while. But I think it's such a it's such a personal journey um, and having the kids involved. It's a very hard one to know the right way to go about it. So at some point, I think that's the book I'd love to write one day. But I think for my own well-being and that of the kids <laughs> I need to make sure I do that in the right way so so yeah I think that would be the the book I'd love to write but I need to do that in in a way I feel happy with it <laughs> Jen who three people who have inspired your outdoors adventures? I think the first is probably my dad actually because he was the first person who took me on kind of the endurance type adventures so we used to walk 
a long way um, and we'd have a big adventure and, and walk miles to get to a, a train station and then jump on a train home. So it was a real adventure. And we did some really long cycling um, adventures, just me and him mainly. So I think, and he was always really supportive of my cycling and running and I had a horse for a bit and he used to drive it around and things. So I think he was he was always really supportive and still is. Like he still runs. We did the Bristol Half Marathon a couple of years ago and he's 70 now. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, and we did it in 145, I think. So he's Ooh, he's still wow. amazing. <laughs> so yeah, probably um he was my earliest inspiration and, and still is really inspiring at, at 70 and still running. So how about your second person? Second one would be probably be Gwen Moffat actually. I read her book a couple of years ago and like, there are so many perceived barriers to getting outside and climbing and things and she she climbed at a time when there were no other women climbing she's a mom she's a prolific writer um and just reading about how she just did her own thing <laughs> and she knew what she needed to do to make herself happy with her life and and just did it and she's really inspiring and the third one again is a writer and that's Nan Shepherd um I've just finished her book for about the third time is it um, the living mountain is it the living mountain yeah and yeah again that was written during the war and just that ability to really look and really like walking barefoot on heather and really really looking and interacting and that immersion in a place and she'd sleep out on the cairngorms as a woman in in back in the 40s so yeah again a real inspiration and the way she put how all those experiences into words is amazing. <laughs> Jen, what tips do you have for adventures with small children? Okay, number one, is lots of changes of clothes. <laughs> so, <laughs> kids not only like will dive in puddles and and paddle over the end of the, over the top of their wellies and things, but they'll also because they run around a lot, but then stop and get cold really quickly. They need loads of layers so you can put them on, take them off. So spare clothes, <laughs> loads of layers, loads of spare clothes is tip number one. Um, and also for you, because you have to pick them up and carry them around and they're <laughs> often very muddy. So, so yeah, we've always got a huge bag with loads of changes of clothing. Tip number two would be regular snacks. So while we try and like keep them pretty healthy when we're at home, when we're out and about, we're really much more lenient. So we will take sweets with us or take chocolate with us and have that as a regular kind of pick them up like you, you quickly spot the signs they start getting a bit whiny or they sit down or start getting grumpy um so a well-timed snack is is really important <laughs> um and it's also nice that they learn not really that sugary things are a reward but that that when you're outside doing really hard work like when when we're running a marathon or anything it's it, it's kind of that that's the sort of thing you need to quickly top up your energy reserves so it's having respect for that kind of food and knowing the right time and place for it I guess and trying to teach them that so yeah well-timed snacks and I think getting involved would be my final one um, you quite often see families like the 
parents standing on the on the sidelines and the kids climbing trees and things and I think actually as a parent if you get involved <laughs> like the kids really appreciate that and really respect you for it and it's loads of fun as well and like we'll quite often go paddling with the kids or climb trees or sim loves a kids playground because he does parkour yeah. <laughs> kids, kids play so I think uh, yeah I, I think leading by example a bit and being really enthusiastic really is infectious for them as well like it that they they follow your lead especially when they're little and even though you feel a bit bit silly at first going and getting on the swing or something or climbing a tree it's it, it's a really good way of of kind of sharing that excitement with them I'm glad that you're all up trees often that's good (laughs) (laughs) do you have any tips for people interested in getting into adventure guidebook writing or also um, pitching outdoors article ideas to uh, magazine editors yeah two quite different things actually so with books the best thing you can do is to buy the oh no I forgot what it's called (laughs) (laughs) the uh, writers and artists handbook that's the one oh right who's Um, that by it's an annual publication and it's a big thick book but it's basically got everything it's got lots of advice in it from writers it's got all the editors names all the different magazines and all the different publishers it's got literary agents so it's basically there's a a new edition every year all up to date um and it's it's just packed with really useful information and all the contact details for everyone you'll need so that would be the the first thing to do that's a great um with books some publishers take unsolicited uh, email submissions so if you go to the publisher's website they will very clearly have a an email address to send submissions to or they will say they're not accepting unsolicited publication uh, submissions and for those ones you need a literary agent first but with particularly with non-fiction and guidebook writing a lot of publishers will accept email submissions so have a look at their submission guidelines and make sure that you stick really rigidly to them because you need to make it as easy as possible for them to read what you want to submit to them and don't be put off if you if you get a rejection email that's often quite a success because most of the time you'll send something off and you'll never hear anything again so <laughs> Yeah, just being resilient. What I tend to do is send things off and forget about them so that I'm not waiting for a reply. And yeah, don't don't put off. Make sure that you pitch to a publisher that publishes really very much in the area you're writing about. And if it's a big organisation, like with the National Trust, I actually sent my initial idea to their customer service department. (laughs) And it gradually filtered its way through to the right person. So be confident and be not pushy but but not afraid of putting yourself out there because uh, once it gets to the right person if it's an idea that they like then then it can go from there with magazines I'd say it's really important to get the magazine and read it cover to cover so that you know the style of writing they look for the kind of content they look for and then they'll all have the editor's name in and email address so just send send pictures to the editor and you, you gradually get onto, if as long as they like what you're writing, you gradually get onto a list where they'll then start contacting you if you're lucky with commissions. So yeah, it's a long process and often um, it is all for free at first. So so it's worth sending some pictures over if, if you've already, if you're working in a, a job already, it's worth trying to get established and writing some stuff to, for free 
to start with. But yeah, be persistent. If it's something you really love doing, then keep at it and you get there. <laughs> they were really helpful tips. That's really useful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those. And uh, wow, it's been fantastic to hear about all your adventures and how you came into guidebook writing. So thank you so much for sharing your story, Jen. Oh, thank you. It's been great to be on. Great, great to chat with you. And and good luck with the next few months. And um, I'm glad to hear that uh, you know the kids are running around in the garden and it's not affecting them too much coronavirus and um, yeah it's been fantastic to talk to you thank you thank you very much Liv <laughs> thanks for listening to Jen's episode you can see photos of Jen and her family's adventures on the Outdoors Fix website or on Instagram at the Outdoors Fix you'll also find her and Sim on Instagram at Jen and Sim if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to make sure you get all the episodes when they come out and please rate and review the podcast to help other people find it. You might also like to check out the dozens of other episodes we've published since The Outdoors Fix started. The Outdoors Fix podcast is proudly supported by Ellis Brigham Mountain Sports, stores nationwide and online, offering everything you need to equip you for the best outdoors experience. Now it's that time to take a short moment to relax and listen to some of the nature sounds that you recorded. These clips are from Louise in Hertfordshire, Michelle in Devon and Rhianne in Bolton.